Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I remember uh, hearing recently, actually it wasn't really, a few, few years ago, uh, a vicar friend of mine took a primary school assembly, uh, I think it was a C of E primary school, and uh, one of the younger kids, maybe kind of four or five years old, puts their hand up and says, Mr. Vicar, I've got a question. And the, he was like, okay, well, what is this? He says, Mr. Vicar, have you ever seen God? And he was like, no, but I could have. The kid was like, really? Yeah, I could have if I'd lived 2,000 years ago. In Israel, I could have seen God because that's when Jesus lived and Jesus is God. And the kid's like, so does that mean if I lived 2,000 years ago in Israel, I could have seen God too? And the vicar was like, yes, you could. And the kid was like, wow. And, you know, a four, four, bunch of four-year-olds were like, wow, that's so cool. That is so cool. I always remember that story, just of this little, this little class of reception all being kind of wowed by the fact that they could have seen God if they'd lived in a particular period of history and basically leads us into this morning about what I want to talk about I want to talk about this morning about meeting Jesus that's what I want to talk about today meeting Jesus I want us to look at a group of guys who actually met Jesus God himself in the flesh 2,000 years ago and what happened as a result so that's what we're going to talk about this morning now question before I start Hands up, who was here last week, last Sunday, okay? This, this isn't a name and shame thing, I'm just, you know, who was here, okay? Good few of you were here. Now, amongst those who were here, who can remember what happened weather-wise towards the end of the service last Sunday? Yes, shout it out. It started to snow, yeah, it started to snow really lightly, and it was kind of nice to look at. And, but by the, time, by the time actually the service ended, it was properly snowing. I don't know if you remember. And then by the time we were finishing packing down from the service, about an hour or so later, everything was properly white outside. And I started to feel a little bit festive. You know, I'm looking outside, everything's covered in white. We're almost in December. And as I was stacking away the chairs, I started to sing to myself, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, just, just lightly. And uh, John Langley, where's John? John was putting some chairs away in the same room. John hears it across the room, goes, no, 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 no. You be quiet right now, all right? It is November. There is no way I am listening to any talk about Christmas or any singing about Christmas in November. What I realized very quickly was John has rules about these things, very strict rules about these things. Uh, and John was not having any singing, any talk about Christmas in November. Well, John, right there at the back, I want, I've got news for you, John. It is no longer November. It is December, so by, that, by your rules, that means I can talk about Christmas today. And guess what I'm going to talk about today? I'm going to talk about Christmas, Christmas, Christmas from start to finish, just for you. So if I'm eyeballing you, it's just because I'm enjoying this. I'm just enjoying talking about Christmas uh, to you. So this morning, we're going to look at the story of the wise men meeting Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, which is the start of a little bit of a mini Christmas series we're going to do over these next uh, few weeks. So you can turn to your Bibles to it, or it's going to appear on the screen. It's Matthew chapter 2. We're going to start reading uh, from Matthew chapter 2, verse uh, 1. 
says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, or wise men, as they're more commonly known, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, it says here that uh, the wise men came from the east. Where in the east? Uh, where did the, in the east did the wise men come from? Well, we, they probably came from Arabia, which we know today as Saudi Arabia. Now, how do we know this? Well, firstly, from the gifts that they brought. They brought gold, they brought frankincense, and they brought myrrh. And we know that gold was plentiful in Arabia back then. And we also know that frankincense and myrrh were harvested from trees that only grew in southern Arabia back then. So Arabia was the only place you could get these three gifts. And on top of this, one of the first commentators in this passage, a guy called Justin Martyr, in, in, in about 160 AD, he wrote about it. And he, he, wrote, he mentioned five times that the wise men came from Arabia. And many other leading Christian writers at the time also said the same thing. Writers such as Tertullian and Clement also said the wise men came from Arabia. Now, if, you're, if you've left in any doubt that the wise men were from Arabia, here's what will seal the deal, all right? I can see you're all very interested. In the, in the 1920s, a British scholar called E.F.F. Bishop visited a Muslim Bedouin tribe in, in Arabia, in that area. And the tribe had an Arabic name, and the, the name of the tribe was called Al-Kokabani, which means those who study the planets. And when this, when this British scholar, when he asked them why they called themselves this, so this is in 1920, they said it was because our ancestors followed the planets and traveled west to Palestine to show honor to the great prophet Jesus when he was born. Interesting. Mm, you've all got your interested faces on. So the wise men are from Arabia, Saudi Arabia. But why is this important? Like, why does this matter? Who cares, really? Well, the answer of why it's important is in a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60. Um, and we're going to just read that real quick now. And th- basically, Isaiah 60 verses 1 to 7 is, is basically the prophet Isaiah prophesying probably about 800 years before Jesus. And he says this. Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 7. It says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord shall arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around, and see, they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then verse 5, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. Now, Midian and Ephah are tribal lands in northern Arabia. All those from Sheba shall come. Sheba was the name of the southern part of Arabia. They shall bring gold. And they shall bring frankincense. Sound familiar, anyone? And shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. So there'll be shepherds that will visit this event too. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. 
Notice some familiar things in there from that prophecy written, what, 800 years before Jesus from Isaiah? Now, this, this prophecy Isaiah was dreaming, in this prophecy, he, Isaiah was dreaming of the wonderful things that would happen to Jerusalem in the future. But these things never did happen to Jerusalem because instead this prophecy was fulfilled, not in Jerusalem, but it was fulfilled in Jesus. And if you look at it, verse 1, around Jesus was the great light, the star. You look at verse 1 of the prophecy again, around Jesus the glory of the Lord appeared. You look at verse 6, to Jesus came the Arab wise men from the desert on camels bringing gold and frankincense. To Jesus, again, verse 7, the shepherds came visiting. See, this prophecy is telling us that the great hopes for the city of Jerusalem were transferred to Jesus in the manger. And that is the good news of the Christmas story. It's not about Jerusalem we look to. It's not about a place, a temple. No, it's to Jesus. This is where our hope is. And you know, I've been to Jerusalem. I uh, went there on holiday about six years ago. I've, I've stood in the church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is built on the spot where Jesus is supposed to have been crucified. And you know what my overwhelming feeling was when I stood in that church? My overwhelming feeling while I stood there was, he isn't here. You know, there's nothing here. You know, he, 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 we don't have to come here to Jerusalem to meet with Jesus. He's alive and we can meet with him anywhere through the Holy Spirit. That was, that was my overwhelming feeling that I had while I stood there in that church. Now, a while ago I said I was going to read a passage and I've only read like two verses of it. Um, so we've only read the first two verses of Matthew chapter 2. So let's go back to our passage. Verse 3. It says this, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Verse 5, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now let me tell you a little bit about King Herod. None of the stuff I'm about to tell you will ever make its way into a nativity play, okay? Let me tell you about King Herod. King Herod was a complex guy. Racially, King Herod was Arab. His dad was from an Arab tribe in southern Israel. His mom was from an Arab tribe in Petra across the Jordan. Religiously, King Herod was Jewish. How this came about was that it was 130 years previously, a Jewish ruler conquered his tribe and forced them to convert or be killed. His grandparents, they converted, and his grandfather became the governor of the province, and his family had been Jewish ever since. Culturally, though, King Herod was Greek. Greek was his first language. He was immersed in Greek culture and thought, and, and he spent many times trying to make Jerusalem into a Greek city. And politically, though, politically, King Herod was Roman. In all the major conflicts that happened during his reign, he always sided with the Roman Empire. So Herod was a complex guy, but he was also very smart. You might say manipulative. He was very smart. We see this in the fact that during Herod's reign, there was a power struggle in the Roman Empire. 
And Caesar Augustus was basically going against Antony and Cleopatra. And basically they were fighting over who was going to have control of the Roman Empire. And Herod chose to side with his friend Antony and Cleopatra. Now to cut a long story short, Antony and Cleopatra lost the war. Caesar won and Herod's left on the losing side. What do I do? Well, what does he do? He travels immediately to Caesar Augustus, comes before him, takes off his crown humbly and kneels before Caesar and confesses to Caesar all that he had done to help Caesar's enemy, confesses to all that he had done to help Antony fighting against him, confessed to how good a friend he was to Antony and how he's actually still loyal to Antony, even in defeat. And then he says to Caesar, he says, what I ask of you is to consider not whose friend, but what a good friend I was. Caesar was very impressed, and he decided that Herod was a man he could trust, takes his crown, puts it back on his head, and allowed him to keep his kingdom and give him more power than he had before. That's Herod. He was complex, but he was very smart. But he was also very, very brutal, okay? And here's the stuff that's not going to make it into a nativity story, okay? Herod married 10 women. He had many children. He had two of his favorite sons strangled because he thought they were becoming political rivals. He got suspicious of his favorite wife, and he had her killed too. Five days before his death, he had the crown prince, his heir, executed as well because he thought, again, he was a political rival, even though it was five days before his death. And Herod's last order before his death was that his troops were to arrest thousands of nobles from across the country and put them in the stadium in Jericho. And as soon as he died, they were all to be executed so that there would be weeping and mourning in the land when he died, because he knew he knew no one would weep and no one would mourn for him. Thankfully, this order was not carried out. <laughs> but this was the kind of guy that Herod was. So when in our passage it says he wants to go and worship this new king, anybody who knows him knows that is complete and utter garbage. He kills anyone he thinks is even a slight political rival. And we see in the verses after this passage that that is exactly what he tries to do when he tries to kill all the babies under two years of age. But the wise men... They probably didn't know any of this yet. So, verse 9, we continue. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, there are lots of theories about the star that guided the wise men and, and how it happened. Now, it's interesting. We know from astronomy that in 7 BC, around the time when Jesus was born, there was a, a conjunction of, of the planets Jupiter and Saturn in the Pisces star constellation. And basically, their orbits converged so that they seemed to come together for a short time, making what looked like this really bright star. And this coming together happened three times in that year. Firstly, in May, if you were looking east from Arabia, then in September, looking west from Arabia, and then in December, looking south towards Bethlehem from Jerusalem. I'm thinking, hmm, interesting, isn't it? Wow. 
Add to this the fact that in ancient Persian astronomy, the Pisces star constellation was the sign of Israel and kings. Jupiter was known as the royal planet and Saturn the planet of old rulers. And you can see why the wise men showed up in Jerusalem asking for the king of the Jews, saying, we have seen his star and we have come to worship him. Interesting. Verse 11 continues. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, which, as we've all seen, was a smart move, they returned to their country by another route. So that is the story of the wise men meeting Jesus on that first Christmas. We all feeling festive? Oh yeah, there's a little bit more blood and gruesomeness in that story, maybe, than you were expecting. There's just two things I want us to take away from this this morning. Firstly, meeting Jesus involves seeking Jesus, okay? Meeting Jesus involves seeking Jesus. That's exactly what the wise men did. When they saw his star... They began a journey of seeking after him until they found him and were able to meet with him, which must have been a life-transforming moment for the wise men. You see, meeting Jesus involves seeking Jesus. That was true for the wise men, and it's true for us too. But what does that look like for us? You know, for the the wise men, seeking Jesus meant hitching up their camels with stacks of supplies and following a star across the desert to Jerusalem. But what what does that look like for us? Where do we seek after Jesus? Where do we seek after Jesus? Well, I know it's kind of obvious, but a great place to seek Jesus is in the scriptures. Because they're all about him after all, aren't they? One of my favorite Christian writers, Dallas Willard, once said, sit down and read one of the Gospels, cover to cover in one sitting, and see if that doesn't do something to you. Basically what he was saying is, you read one of the Gospels, you're going to find Jesus there, and that's not going to leave you unchanged. We seek Jesus in the scriptures, but we we also seek Jesus in prayer. On uh, Wednesday morning just this week, uh, I, was, uh, I was praying through a bunch of stuff, just stuff that was on my mind, you know, little things that were just getting to me, bugging me a little bit. And uh, I just prayed real simply, Lord, would you hear my prayers this morning? And, uh, and then I opened my Bible to read a psalm, and it, it fell to Psalm 5. Uh, on the start of Psalm 5, it just says this, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and I wait expectantly. And I don't know what it was, but that was just what I needed to hear. You know, I really believe that was God speaking to me. And, I, and then I wrote out the things in my mind and I handed them over to God. And I just, I don't know, I just felt so much freer afterwards. Like a, I don't know, like a, like a weight had been lifted off of me. You know, that's, that's what happens when we're, we're meeting with Jesus through prayer. Okay, so we seek Jesus, we meet Jesus in prayer. Another great place to seek Jesus is in the church. I know all these things are obvious. Where do we seek Jesus? You know, the Bible, prayer, church. But we seek him in the church. You know, a few weeks ago during the worship time, 
here at church. I can't remember even who was preaching, but um, it was in the worship time afterwards. And uh, I don't know, I just, I got a sense inside of me that I was just, I was becoming a little bit judgmental. I'd been a bit judgmental this last week. And um, in that moment, I just started to feel a little bit guilty. I just felt that guilt come in. But at that exact moment when I was starting to feel guilty, someone from church came to the front to share during the worship time. Now, I didn't see them. I don't know if you ever have that time, you know, when you're kind of totally in the worship, your eyes are closed and you know what, there could, anything could happen and you wouldn't know. You're just, you're just in the zone. I was in the zone, I worshiping away. Uh, so I didn't notice the person come to the front until they, they said what they were going to say. And they just came to the front and they just said really simply, I feel like some people feel guilty right now. And God says, you're not condemned. You're not guilty. I've covered it with the cross. And I was there and I was like, whoa, that was, I think that was God speaking. And I was like, oh, I don't know why I'm so surprised. Yes. God does speak. He does speak in church. And I don't think anyone else better than I lived. I don't think it connected. But I was just like, wow, that was God speaking to me. You know, and, and that's true. God speaks to us. He meets with us in church when we, when we seek him amongst his body. And, and, you know, God makes some promises about when we seek him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 2 Chronicles 15 chapter 2 says, if you seek him, he will be found by you. Okay, you can hold some of these verses up to God and say, hey God, you have said, I'm seeking you, I want to find you. You see, when we seek the Lord, it says we will find him and he will meet with us. Revelation chapter 3 says, actually, he doesn't just meet with us. It says he also has a meal with us. That's even better, isn't it? Revelation 3 says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's really interesting. This verse is often taken to refer to like unbelievers, non-Christians becoming Christians. You know, you kind of, you, you, Jesus is knocking on your door and you, you let him in and you become a Christian. But actually, this verse is written to believers. This verse is written to Christians. It's written to, to Christians who have drifted. And who Jesus is saying, hey, I want to come back into your life. I want to be number one again. I want, to, I want to meet with you. I want to commune with you. That's what this verse is about. And, you know, I do wonder if, I don't know if the pandemic has got a lot of us out of many of the good habits we used to practice to seek Jesus, to meet with him. You know, perhaps we aren't praying or reading our Bibles as much as we used to pre-lockdown, or perhaps we're not prioritizing getting to church as much as we used to. Maybe for some of us, we need to just go back and seek the Lord in these areas once again. So that's it. Sorry, I'll get to you soon, Sebastian. Yeah. So that's the first thing I want us to, say, to take away from this morning. Meeting Jesus involves seeking him. But the second thing I want us to see from this passage this morning is that meeting Jesus leads to worship. Meeting Jesus leads uh, to worship. You see, when the wise men meet Jesus, they don't show up and kind of stand proudly over him, kind of inspecting him and poking and prodding him and doing some experiments to test that it really is Jesus and let's do a DNA test. There's none of that. No, it says their first reaction was to what? Worship. Worship. Yes, it was to worship him. But notice this, right? They don't just worship. 
It says they bowed and worshipped. Now these incredibly wealthy, highly intelligent, respected foreign dignitaries bowed in total submission, total allegiance to this little baby. And you see, when we really meet with Jesus, it leads to worship, no matter who you are or where you come from. And unlike the wise men, we worship the risen Jesus. Isn't that right? Yeah. The resurrected Jesus, the victorious Jesus, who has triumphed over sin and death to bring us life. We've even got more reason to worship than they did. Amen? Yeah, amen. I'm going to amen myself. It's good. It's fine. You know, we all worship. And what we worship is simply what is most valuable to us in life. That's what we, we all worship something. Just whatever is most valuable to you in life, you worship that thing. Worship is simply our response to what we value most in life. And when we value Jesus most in our lives, we will worship him. Now, worship, I'm sure we all know, worship is an inward heart attitude. You know, it's something on the inside, yes. But it also has a close relationship to our physical bodies. You see, bowing and worshipping from the wise men were one and the same thing. Okay, so the, the inward feeling of worship for them and the physical manifestation of worship, bowing, went hand in hand. Okay, there's just no way the wise men would have shown up to Jesus and said, Jesus, we worship you, and stood there with their hands in their pockets. Like, that would never have happened. That would have been completely nonsensical to them. Okay, it just wouldn't have happened because worship in the ancient world always involved your body. You couldn't just stand there and say, I'm worshipping. You always had to do something. It was it just, that was the way it was. And we see this in the fact that one of the Hebrew words for worship in the Bible is the word yada. It's the word yada. And it literally means to throw your hands in the air. That's what yada means. Okay? Throw your hands in the air. That's the word they used for worship. You see, throwing your hands in the air was so much part of Hebrew praise and worship that they actually began to use the word for throwing your hands in the air, Yada, to just mean the same as worship. You know, so it would be like, we're going to worship. Right, worship, hands in the air, same word, same thing. You know, see where I'm going with this. Some of you are getting a bit nervous. You're thinking, right, we're going to have to put our hands up and worship after this. Don't worry, I'm not going to be too hard on this. But I do feel like sometimes in Britain, you know, we've kind of done the complete opposite. Let's worship. Hands in pockets. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the, we do the complete opposite with our hands. Not let's worship. Let's get our hands in the air. Come on, let's, let's make some noise. It's, let's worship. It's hands in pockets. Let's make sure we don't look too conspicuous. Um, it's all about the inward. It's all about the Lord, the feeling. It's just, you know. And we don't really focus so much on what, what our body is doing. What are, what, what are out, what's happening on the outside? It's interesting. I was reading... Uh, a psychology article recently, makes me sound really smart, but it was very short and very, you know, it wasn't very academic. Uh, but basically, it was talking about how our, our body posture affects us emotionally. It does. I mean, basically, we're saying simple things like, it's very difficult to be happy while you're frowning. You know, it just doesn't really work. You know, it's very difficult to be sad while you're smiling. It just doesn't work. You know, you, you, your body affects you emotionally. And basically what it was saying was that certain body postures open us up emotionally and other body postures close us down. Okay, so when our arms are open, that opens us up. When we're hunched over and our hands are in our pockets, that closes us down emotionally. And that's what it was saying. And 
And this is also true for us when we worship. Our, our body posture on the outside does affect our heart attitude on the inside when it comes to worship. And all this is, is to say that, that when we worship together on a Sunday, let's take up a position in worship that reflects what we're singing. And what that's going to do is that's going to enhance our worship together. And you might even want to do what the ancient Hebrews did. Just be like, right, worship, get them hands up in the air. Just go on, do it. Get them hands up, raise them up. Because when we take an open posture in worship, our emotions also open up to. You know, we have this attitude, and I have it as well. In worship, I think, I'll maybe put my hands up when I'm feeling it. You know, you know when, when Callum just hits that awesome song, you know, where it's just, it's like in Christ alone, and it's just, you can just feel the presence of God. I'll maybe put my hand up, I'll maybe clap then, but right now I'm not really feeling, I'm just a bit, yeah, right now. I don't really like this song, it's maybe new. Yeah. You kind of get that, it's almost like when I, when I feel something on the inside, then maybe I'll do something, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, maybe I'll. but actually what we need to do is say, actually, no, let's, let's open our bodies up to worship before we feel it, and that will actually lead to the feelings coming in. Get their hands, open ourselves, hands up, whatever, and then the emotions, then the feelings come. Also, and I know, also, when we're, when we're expressive in our worship, it's also really encouraging for other people to see as well, isn't it? You ever been in church and you see someone really worshiping, you think, wow, yeah, that's good, that's inspiring. I remember a guy who used to go to CCM Withington, uh, called, called Tom Belshaw, say who it is, and uh, some of you have been around CCM a while, you may know him, and Tom Belshaw, he was a great guy, just when he worshiped, he properly went for it, he sang his heart out, his arms in the air, he just, and I remember going to him one day and I said, Tom, mate, oh, I love watching you worship. You know, when I watch you worship, it encourages me to worship. And he said, oh, cool. Well, yeah, I didn't notice, but, but I was just doing my thing. I said, okay, Tom, right, from now on, I want you to sit at the front every week. And he's like, you sure? Yeah, right at the front every week. Because actually, if watching you worship encourages me to worship, it probably encourages some other people as well. So sit at the front, okay? He's like, Okay, fine. So for about the next six months, he sat in the front row at church because I told him to. But it does. When we see other people engaging and expressing themselves in worship, it, it helps and encourages other people too. And also, being expressive in worship is also very encouraging for our worship leaders as well. Let me let you into a little bit of a secret, okay? When our worship leaders are at the front leading us, it's not just you who can see them. They can also see you. What do they see? Isn't that a good question? What do they see? <laughs> they can also see you. And you know, when, when our worship leaders, when they can see someone really expressing themselves in worship, it's so encouraging for them. And we owe our worship leaders a bit of help, don't we? I mean, they've been singing on their own behind screens to people in masks for 18 months. So if for no other reason, let's express ourselves in worship just to help our worship leaders out, just to do them a favor. If it's no other reason than that, let's do it for that. You know, meeting with Jesus involves seeking him. We've said that. And it, and it leads to worship, as we've, as we've seen. And you know, Jesus, Jesus can meet us in the most awful situations. You know, King Herod, after being given the slip by the wise men, and then he had all the baby boys under two years old. He had them all killed in Bethlehem to try and get Jesus. We know that's the next passage. It's a horrible, brutal, brutal story. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine the scene of that? 
All the baby, all the baby boys under two years old in Bethlehem, all being killed, the blood, the screaming, the tears, the tragedy. But here's the crazy thing, right? Stuff like that was not uncommon back then, right? And Herod wasn't particularly brutal if you compared him to many of the other kings and rulers of that time. They all did the same thing. You see, Jesus was born into an incredibly brutal and oppressive and unjust world. And that is why he came. He came to bring light into this dark world. And you know, if the good news of the gospel could flourish in that world, which it did, it can flourish in our day too, which it is doing. But also, if Jesus can meet people in the awful world of the first century, he can meet with us in the awful situations we find ourselves in. And I don't know, perhaps some of you are going through some awful situations in life right now. Perhaps some of you are struggling with, with serious illness, mental health issues, relationship problems, family issues, loneliness. I don't know. But you might really be struggling right now. I don't, I don't know all of you. I don't know all of what's going on in your life. But whatever it is, can I encourage you right now to invite Jesus into your situation. Invite him to meet with you in the midst of it and to minister to you in the midst of that situation.